Welcome to Tough Talk. Tough Talk was created to have challenging conversations across industries such as mining, oil and gas, renewables. We'll talk hydrogen, we'll talk hydropower, we'll talk offshore wind. You name it, nothing's off the table. Welcome to Tough Talk. Welcome to Tough Talk with Jodie Rowe and today Richard Hockney. So you're welcome. So we've got Nico Lachlan and Stephen Hunt. Nick is the business development guru at Spark. That'd be correct. That's right. And and renewable energy. And renewable energy. Oh, how could I forget? And Stephen Hunt is the executive chairman at Spark. Spark came to my attention, I would say about 18 months ago, by a stockbroker. And I started following it heavily. Heavily, heavily from a big investor. And um, I've been watching it over the last 18 months, fascinated by what you guys do. So thank you for joining Tough Talk today. And we wanted to start with a bit of an understanding of the individuals. So So I was just going to chat a bit to Stephen. So Stephen and I have known each other since I reckon the mid 80s when when we were very young. Uh, we first met in Melbourne, and uh, I reckon we followed each other to England. So, uh, Stephen, can you just just give us a bit of your background, a bit of work experience, and how how you've got involved with uh, with the position you're in now? Yeah, thanks, Richard, and uh, good to be sitting here with you across the table rather than a, a football field. Yes. <laughs> and I was going to say, you just call me Richard. He always calls me Dick. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I'm trying to hesitate. be very, hor- yeah, no. very formal. Yeah, you, can be, you don't have to be formal. So you just have to say, let's not go down the Crows conversation. No, 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 no. no, no. Yeah, that's no. it. Yeah. We were talking the All-Stars back in the day. Oh, yeah, we, okay. we played in Melbourne together. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. It was more an excuse for a beer afterwards, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 which was a lot of fun. Mm. Anyway, I guess my... Uh, career really goes back to university days where you start to uh, form a path, did a Bachelor of Business majoring in marketing at, well, UniSA back in mm-hmm. the day, the SAIT, South Australian Institute of Technology, which I know you guys will probably yeah. remember well. That then led me into the workforce. Um, I took up a job at BHP within Adelaide as part of the, the still group, so in sort of the, the marketing uh, division of, of the steel group here in Adelaide. About 18 months after that, I moved to Melbourne and uh, continued on in the steel division for a, for a little while before moving across to the minerals division, which seemed a, a lot sexier than, than uh, the mm. steel group, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. So I got involved in the marketing of, the, of manganese ore, uh, mineral sands in Melbourne, Moved around a bit, ended up actually spending about 12 months in Norway, which was which was a lot of fun, back to Melbourne, and then ultimately had about five years in London with BHP's Minerals Marketing Division. So that was great exposure to a whole bunch of different minerals mm-hmm. um, and, and also cultures, selling, marketing, coking coal, iron ore, mineral sands, as I mentioned, manganese, yeah. ferro alloys. Etc. So th- that was that was a, a fantastic job in the sense of great exposure to uh, the world. You know, North Africa, Middle East, Eastern Europe uh, to a great extent as well. Uh, Western Europe, of course, and uh, but also the, the the marketing of those those products. So y- you became very very knowledgeable, you know, in a few minerals, in the marketing of those minerals. But 
you're a very small cog in a huge wheel. Yeah. So in a sense, didn't learn a lot about business, but learned a lot about the, the products I was marketing. So that was really interesting. As a, I guess, a, a move from there, BHP at the time was going through a massive restructure. This was about the time that Billiton bought mm. into, or they merged uh, with BHP. I still remember the, the the commodity prices at the time, and it's 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 the reason why BHP was sort of forced into this merger, if you like. I remember iron ore was fourteen dollars a ton. Yeah, you know, like it's what well, you know, sort of one twenty thereabouts. To mid nineties, something like that. Yeah, this is two thousand yeah. uh, and two thousand one. Well, just just yeah, two thousand. Yeah, um, the end of two thousand. Coking coal was like thirty thirty five bucks a ton. Oil was like eleven dollars, uh, so you know it was a very different world, yeah. and, and there was a lot of pressure on for for BHP. It was sort of like the the worst of times all coalesced yeah. at the same time, and you know I think they were talking about getting into bed with Telstra and you know doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things wow. at the time. Yeah. It's only twenty years ago. Yeah, that long ago. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's I haven't really thought much about it until we mm. <laughs> start to talk about it, but it, it's was an opportunity for me to put my hand up and say, okay, I've been with BHP for 14 or 15 years. The kids were starting to get a little bit older. I wanted to get off the merry-go-round with a, you know, multinational company. I knew my life would be sort of jumping around from place to place if, if I was going to stay there. Mm. Didn't really want to do that. I wanted to get back to the old hometown, Adelaide, and, you know, basically settle down with the with the family, which then led me into the smaller end of town, so yeah. more the exploration side. So to cut a longer story short, been involved in the, the junior space of exploration on the boards of a, a number of companies throughout that journey. Mm-hmm. And more recently, when I say recently, the last probably seven or eight years, I've had exposure to and been working in graphite. And uh, graphite uh, then led me into graphene. Mm. Without hogging the mic for too much longer, no, no, we'll, we'll get you to talk about the difference between graphite and graphene at some stage. But mm. Yeah, going. yeah, yeah. So just to understand how I guess Spark was started, I was yeah, as I say, exposed to, to graphene through Vault Resources, which is a company I was uh, executive chairman of, which was and still has exploration tenements in Tanzania for graphite, amongst other things, and I was in. Went to New York at a conference and met a lot of people in relation to graphene. Came home and talking to my mum about all this. And a couple of weeks later, she's had cut a piece out of the paper. And she said, didn't you mention something about graphene? And I said, yeah, yeah. She said, look, there's a guy, a professor at Adelaide University that's doing a lot of work in graphene. I've gone, oh, that's interesting. So I basically cold called him. Yeah, right. And so went down to... University and uh, said, you know, pretty keen to understand what you're doing in graphene. And it turned out that he basically is the, the lead professor for an ARC hub, which is an Australian hub, so for, for graphene research and development. So, right on the doorstep was this great opportunity, if you like, to get yeah. involved in, in graphene. So, developed a relationship and then through a good friend in Dan Eddington. We put a bit of money in, started up a new company mm-hmm. and started to get involved in looking at doing research together with the University of Adelaide in graphene. 
Mm, right. There you go. Excellent. Wow, I didn't know it came from University of Adelaide, so that's really yeah. didn't know it was a cold that's call. That's really cool. Didn't know it was your lovely mm. mum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so funny how things uh, develop. Mm. That's uh, good. And, Nick, you've been involved for year and year and a bit, year and a half? Yeah, year yeah. and a bit. I started at the beginning of 2022 yeah. with, with Spark. And do you want to give us your background? Yeah, maybe a, a quick one. So I did my- Well, you're only half Stephen's age. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Be, yeah. <laughs> Rubbing it in. I'm not 70 yet, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I, I studied at the Uni of Adelaide doing mining engineering. It was actually the first year they brought mining back in. And I actually took the decision late in year 12 because they were offering scholarships. And I thought, you know, I'd invested in some specky mining stocks, you know, why not give it a go? if they were going to pay for your degree. So I did that and then did some work experience, realised it probably wasn't for me but was con- you know, keen to continue the engineering degree. So I finished that off and did commerce. Um, and whilst I was doing commerce, there's a, a boutique advisory firm here in Adelaide that was started up by a couple of guys, I think you know Richard yep. um, Cray, Connor and Rob Greenslade, called Griffin Partners. So they were doing advisory work for, yeah. for the mining space, a lot of the, the junior miners in particular. So I joined them They're whilst both, at uni. Uh, very smart individuals. Mm. Yes, well known in the in the Adelaide space. Yeah. Um, Not very good golfers. Very poor golfers, <laughs> but but still better than you, Dick. <laughs> well, that's not hard. Anyway, keep going, Nick. Sorry. No, so I, I worked for them and actually just as I finished my degree, so I was going full time, they got bought by Standard Chartered, which was a global bank. Uh, who wanted to establish a present in, in the mining um, space. So I worked with Standard Chartered uh, from here in Adelaide for about five years and then moved with them to London and then jumped across to Rothschild, who's a well-known advisory group uh, in Europe, uh, to join their mining team and, and spent four years there um, up until COVID brought me back to Adelaide. But what I saw over in Europe, in particularly in the, the, the later part of my tenure there, was a massive shift towards sustainability and and the environment and looking at ways to reduce our emissions. So I was sort of relatively surprised moving back to Australia that that really hadn't caught on Mm. at the time and, you know, saw it as an opportunity. So actually sort of upskilled myself in that space, having been from resources. I'd done a bit in lithium and battery metals, but not really anything more broadly in the energy space. So spent a bit of time doing that, ended up consulting for Rio Tinto on a couple of renewable energy projects for them. From, from my home here, got the knock on the door. I know Dan Eddington as well, and he um, was talking to me about Spark and met Stephen and sort of went from there. Right. Excellent. So this sort of leads us on to Spark and, you know, when you formed it and it was basically graphene. So tell us a bit more about Spark and the the not just the graphene itself, but also the application of it, because I'm kind of interested in that because it's a bit of a game changer for like maintenance and mm. all of that sort of stuff. And then it sort of you've gone down the next journey in the renewable section as well. So I'd like to hear more about that as well. Yeah, sure. Maybe just to give a little bit of context about what graphene is, which mm-hmm. hopefully provides a little bit of understanding then as to how it can help improve materials. So graphene was first discovered back in 2004 by a couple of professors working out of Manchester University. They went on to win the Nobel Physics Prize in 2010 for that discovery. So it was, you know, quite a significant uh, development, if you like. 
basically what they were doing was taking a piece of sticky tape and putting it onto some graphite. What they were trying to do was to get down to the the smallest layer of graphite that they could possibly get to. Mm-hmm. God knows why they'd want to do that, but anyway, <laughs> maybe to win a physics yeah, okay. <laughs> Anyway, what they ended up doing was getting down to one atom layer. So that, that had never been done before. I'm sure they probably weren't just using sticky tape at that point, but uh, I'm not sure how they did it. But uh, what they went on to discover was that using graphene and you know multiple layers of graphene, it, it actually has incredible properties. It, it's 200 times stronger than steel. It's got a, a surface area of uh, 3,000, say, 500 metres, square metres per gram. So it's just absolutely massive surface area. Wow. It's 10 times more conductive than copper. So it's, it's got this, it, it's flexible, it's, it's malleable, it's, it's got uh, amazing thermal properties as well. So it's got all of these fantastic properties, which what people have been trying to do since it's been discovered is to impart some of those qualities into materials to make them either stronger or more conductive, absorbing due to the surface area or, you know, as sensors, all, all sorts of applications. So just just on that, though, if, so say, for example, I, I the first thing I think of is rods or balls in a mill, right? Like if you're a processing plant, if you applied it to the rods, that would reduce wear and tear? Is that what we're... Yeah, so it would strengthen <clears throat> the rods. It, it putting putting graph, graphene into into steel has has been an area of a huge amount of research. Uh, mm. I think particularly uh, the Indians have been looking at that uh, a lot. It, it's been a difficult one to achieve. Yeah, uh, success with what we're finding is adding strength to uh, composite materials, so more sort of plastic type. Oh, okay. Uh, right. you, you know, is, is actually providing really really positive uh, strength in particular. Uh, so have you got an example of something that you would do that like on a day-to-day? A- absolutely, yeah. So it, we're seeing it being added to carbon fibre. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you think of your Ferraris and tennis rackets, golf. Yep. You know, yeah, I often think clubs. of Ooh. my Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, now I do. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, hang on to those spark shares. You never know. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so that's one area where we're working on and yeah. we're, we're starting to see some, some, you know, great outcomes. So it bonds okay. better with that than steel. There's something well, it, there. Well, not- putting it into steel is, is, is an issue because – you have to do it when it's basically molten, yeah, and that and then it tends to burn off. Yeah, it's carbon, ah, right. so you're going to have a problem. But in a composite, yeah. um, you don't have that issue. It's it's a, an additive, mm-hmm. so it's an additive into into those composites. As I say once again, to you know get different qualities that you're looking for, and the chemistry of doing that is actually very similar to the coatings industry, adding graphene into a coating. Mm-hmm. This has really been our most mature and our, our certainly our longest period of time that we've been working on any, yeah. any particular application. So we've been really, I guess, fortunate to be able to, to bring together a, a team of coatings experts. They have been um, technical directors of global coatings companies. 
these guys. So we, we've we've got a couple of them, uh, one based in the UK, uh, another one in the US, and we've got a, a really good team here in Australia, one in Brisbane, uh, and as well as our our team here in Kenttown mm-hmm. in little old Adelaide. Yeah. So we we believe we've actually got the probably the the most credentialed, highly credentialed coatings team that's focusing on graphene probably in the world. So we, we've really brought together a very high caliber team. Yep. So what are we doing with graphene in mm. coatings in particular? So what we are looking to do is to improve anti-corrosiveness mm. of, uh, of, of coatings. So massive market, you know, $34 billion plus type yeah. industry marine and protective coatings. So what we've what we've done is to build a, a laboratory type set up at Kent Town where we can accelerate and simulate like 15 years of very heavy weathering that you might experience in the in the North Sea on a yep. oil rig for example. We can do that in 6 months through the equipment that we have. Yeah. And it goes through cyclic testing of heat, water, salt, freezing, UV, all of this goes on for about six months and it's sort of compressed the the weathering process. The results that we've had is that we get up to 40% better anti-corrosion than what you would have without graphene. Wow, that's significant. It is very significant. So mm-hmm. getting those sorts of results, and we've done a lot of other test work as well to, to understand, well, how does it work? It's no good going to somebody and saying, oh, we get... 40% better results and I'll source it. Well, how do you do that? Yeah. So we actually have to understand the mechanism by which that works. Yeah. So we've done a hell of a lot of work getting to a point where we understand how it does work, what what that mechanism is, and to be able to have data to be able to explain to the biggest coating companies in the world who aren't going to just flippantly, you yeah. know, change their whole product stream uh, because we've come along. Yeah. And so what are they actually buying? So, good question. Thank you. We are not a we are not a coatings company. Yeah. We we don't make paint. So, what we do, however, is to make a graphene additive product. Okay. So, this graphene additive which sits in a liquid, that then gets added to whether it's a a coating or a composite for your Ferrari. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, where we've come from is, you know, a lot of research and development started at the University of Adelaide, who, by the way, are an 8% shareholder of Spark, so right, they, okay. they've taken a significant yeah. position, which they've been fantastic uh, to work with too. They've just been great. So really supportive. And what we have done is to develop our own manufacturing of this graphene additive product. That in itself has been no mean feat. Yeah. Because what we've been able to do is to evenly disperse the graphene in a solution. Graphene by nature wants to re-agglomerate yeah. back into graphite. So to hold it into this solution has been quite a game changer. Mm. So we've found a, a way to do that. We we've got the equipment that we've, you know, a lot of it we've had to buy in from overseas. And we've set up a a, a small manufacturing facility in Lonsdale, down the road here. So we now are in a position where we can produce commercial quantities of this graphene additive product. 
you don't need much graphene to change the material, yeah. the performance of the material. So our little bit of kit, we can add to maybe up to 5 million litres of oh, paint. Wow. Okay. So just one little bit of kit, as I say, can really stand us up and you know really target a lot of coatings companies, uh, uh, infrastructure owners. So there's, there's a lot of opportunities here. And that's where we are right now at the cusp of commercialising what we're doing. So it's been a bit of a journey to get to this point of yeah. uh, being on the cusp of commercialisation. And that's really interesting because it just basically goes out to market now. Now it's like a revenue opportunity. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So we're at that point. It, it, once again, it's it's not going to be uh, a gimme. One of the key things that we've been focusing on very recently is sustainability. Nick mentioned it earlier, mm. and yep. rightly so. The world has changed, and it's really, I think, hit home to us and just to, even in the last few months. So when we look at our coatings, for example, we can see that we, we can improve the performance significantly. Mm. There, there's cost benefit, but now we're going, well, hang on, there's actually sustainability benefit as well. Yeah, Let's understand what that is because that is a massive selling point for us. Oh, absolutely. It's just not the, you know, the size of the market. It's just the all the operating efficiencies and all of that, the total, I was going to say total cost of ownership or whatever it, sort it, of terms. It, it, well, but, you're spot on because yeah. you, if you don't have to paint so often or you use less mm. of it, th that means, you know, there's there's less work that goes into, you know, the maintenance and, yep. you know, and repainting and, and all of this so that, that all of that is going to help the So given your network too, you would have talked to some of the big global players about Absolutely. this sort of product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have been in discussion with them for some eight, 18 months with some of them and, yeah. you know, they've they've got our product that they're testing and, yeah, so we're well down the track with those discussions with the, 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 the major coatings companies in the world. Yeah, right. wow, that's fascinating. So Nick, really Nick you're, sorry, you're... You've got sustainability in your title or renewables in your title. Do you, do you want to talk a bit more about that? Yeah, so it's a good sort of segue yeah. maybe the relationship with the Uni of Adelaide uh, doing work with graphene with them actually um, led to the hydrogen project we're involved in. So this was before my time, but say you have a, a photocatalytic water splitting project, which is now called Spark Hydrogen, and they had a coatings issue. Uh, with the photocatalyst and they came to us knowing that we had all these coatings experts and said, hey, can you help us with this? And Stephen said, yeah, sure, we, we can, but we'd also be keen to get involved, you know, in any other ways, you know, in, in terms of maybe taking some equity in the project, which we eventually um, did and secured at the start of 2022, which is when mm -hmm. I joined. And at that same time, the, the university had been negotiating or talking to Fortescue Future Industries around that same project, around that same technology, well and truly before we got involved in the discussions. I think there was a bit of an impasse there and um, having us actually come in and broker the deal, um, we managed to formulate the joint venture, which is now Spark Hydrogen, Fortescue Future Industries, uh, ourselves and the University of Adelaide. So yeah. that was actually how we got involved in, yeah. in Hydrogen. It was through being you know, good at coatings. Mm. Yeah. So the the actual hydrogen project itself, can you tell us a little details around that? Sure. So Spark Hydrogen is a technology that is being developed um, at the university. 
uh, and we're investing in that technology in, in a number of different ways. But the core basis for what we're looking to do is it's an alternative route to producing green hydrogen. Okay. So you would have heard of electrolysis. Um, yeah. I think you mentioned some of your former guests before we started. There's a lot of um, hype and talk about um, yeah. projects involving large wind and solar farms and using that electricity to split water. There's actually another process which we're working on called photocatalytic water splitting. And that involves using a photocatalyst, which is a material. And that material in the presence of sunlight will actually split the water without any additional input. So it's been known about for about 50 years, but it's only been in the last five or so years that it's um, really been talked about as a potential route to producing green hydrogen. And part of that's because, you know, so much more investments going into this space. New photocatalysts are being developed all the time, better at water splitting, importantly. Mm. Yep. And yet companies like us looking to invest and, and progress these type of technologies, which are a real game changer from uh, the existing, I guess, better known technology being electrolysis. Yeah. Well, it's kind of two things for me. Like when we talk green hydrogen, we're talking around power generation at the source of power generation, right? Well, it's not transportable stuff. Well, hydrogen is you know, tra transportable. That's part of the idea. It's a way of transporting green energy yeah. you know, in the form of a, a fuel, so yeah. more like a, you know, a fuel rather than having to, to transport you know, electricity via power lines. Mm -hmm. So green hydrogen's talked about a lot because there are certain industries like steel making, mm -hmm. you know, aluminium, you know, global shipping, uh, where well, you can't just electrify them. No. You, you can't put batteries in those things and, and make them work. So hydrogen really has a role to play there. Apart from that, it's actually a massive industry today, hydrogen. It's a mm. 90 million tonne per year industry. What's that in dollar terms? Uh, so if you consider that it might be two, $3,000 uh, a tonne, it's you know multi, multi-billion dollar yeah. industry, hundreds of billions. Yeah. So there's the opportunity to decarbonise that industry today. It has to happen yeah. you know, to meet net zero. Mm. So people talk about hydrogen in, in different, uh, with different points of view, but the reality is to, to meet net zero, you need to decarbonise hydrogen. And at the moment, there's billions and billions of dollars going into electrolysis, uh, far less going into alternatives to electrolysis. And, and we believe that's a real advantage of, of what we're doing. And with, will this actually reduce the cost as well? Because, I mean, hydrogen's quite expensive. Yeah, so that, that's the idea. Part of the conundrum with green hydrogen projects at the moment being electrolysis projects, they don't stand on their own two feet from a cost perspective. Yeah. That's why we're not seeing a lot of projects being developed, frankly. That's why what the US just announced being the you know, Inflation Reduction Act was so important because it you know, it provides up to $3 a kilo credit towards green hydrogen production. So that actually does make electrolysis start to compete with the existing way of producing hydrogen, which is via fossil fuels. Yeah. So that's the target. Yeah. Um, our, our technology, that, that's exactly what we're targeting. It's on a completely different technology path, completely different cost path mm -hmm. than electrolysis. Yeah. And our goal is to get those costs down as much as we can so that uh, it competes not only with electrolysis, but hopefully with fossil fuel-based uh, production sooner rather than later. Mm. And so Australia is quite well-placed for hydrogen, isn't it, like compared to other countries? Would that be right? 
It is because of our renewable energy resources. Yeah. So we can, we've got a huge amount of land. We've got great solar resource. We've got great wind resource. Uh, and in many places, they, they're together, the solar and wind. So they're the perfect spot to put a electrolysis project. But even still, with those advantages, it's not cost competitive. Uh, and that's why we're not seeing a huge amount of you know, project development decisions being taken right now. Yeah, it was interesting when looking at Sun Cable and what they were trying to do. I was I was really struggling with the concept because it just seemed quite expensive. But I'm sure there's more powerful people that get it more than, <laughs> more than me. But okay. But it was I, I didn't even really realise that we had so much natural hydrogen gas as well. That's quite shallow out there. Uh, so this is a more recently, I think you're talking about what they call gold hydrogen, which yeah. is actually hydrogen underground. Yeah. And there's been quite a lot of pegging in South Australia because they opened up the, or they created a licence for for doing that 12 to 18 months ago. Um, that's yet to be proven. You know, proven either. I think there's one analogue they point to in Africa where they're producing hydrogen out of a well. Mm-hmm. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because it, it is, seems yeah. quite shallow. But also the South Australian government seemed to be right on the front foot with developing hydrogen. Is it Sam Crafter, CEO, people like that? Is South Australia sort of the leading force in, I mean, this is a one-of-a-kind technology, but are they leading the, the charge on hydrogen or is it Queensland always seemed to be very vocal? Yeah, no, look, South Australia um, has, and part of that is because of our renewable electricity take-up yeah. being so much earlier than other states in Australia and also globally, where the world leading in terms of the portion of renewable energy in our grid at you know over 70% for the yeah. last 12 months. That is, people around the world talk about that. Yeah. That makes you news in Europe. Yeah. yeah. Mm. That's so, the unfair advantages that Richard Turner talked about. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah. exactly, but it was also the previous governments investing yeah early on, yeah. and that's actually come to bear. So people look at South Australia and say, wow, there's a lot of renewable energy resource there. The next step to doing that, and part of what Sam's doing, is to look at, okay, can we use the excess renewable energy resource, particularly during the day when the sun is shining, mm. uh, and produce hydrogen out of it via electrolysis, store that as energy in the form of the, the chemical energy in hydrogen, yep. and then yeah. use it in a power plant. Can I ask you, mm. you, you mentioned before that it's, that it's not cost competitive at the moment. How do, how how does it become cost competitive? Is it is it just naturally people learn and you know the we see that with all sorts of technologies that that comes down or what's your views there? So I'll comment on electrolysis first, and yeah. these are personal views, but yeah, based on fact. The cost of electrolysis is driven by the cost of electricity. Yeah, that is the main input to the dollars per kilo you'll get from a green hydrogen project today. Yeah. So what, you know, in terms of getting costs down, it relies on the cost of solar and wind coming down. Now, my view is that solar and wind are quite mature now. Yeah. The costs have already come down significantly over the last 10, 10 years in those you know, industries. So the incremental gains we'll get from now on wind and solar, I think, will be marginal. Yeah. The next biggest piece is the cost of electrolyzers. Undoubtedly, that will come down because it's a rapidly, you know, an industry scaling rapidly, and that, as you say, brings costs down naturally. Yep. So, they're the two components. But the biggest, by far, is the electricity component. Yeah. Okay. 
That's interesting subjects, isn't it? Yeah. So, so Spark has these two products that you're developing. Is there more in the pipeline? That was exactly. I was going to say, <laughs> are, are you, have you got an R and D yeah. area, or do you want to start generating cash? And then, what's what's the plan there? Yeah, no, we're, we're pretty well funded. Um, yeah. yeah, so we're, we're funded really through until basically the the next twelve months. Yes, we do have other uh, projects, and we do have a project which is actually using a, a material akin to, to graphene in mm-hmm. in the battery space. So once again, it's it's the renewables, but it, it's sort of drawing on a lot of the uh, experience and knowledge that we have with using a, a carbon material to produce an anode in a battery. So Nick's once again involved in that project wow. wearing his renewable energy hat. So maybe you could touch on the sodium yeah. ion battery. So do you mind? Wow. Yeah. So this is part of the sort of portfolio approach that we're taking. We're a technology company and you yep. need to sort of do that uh, work on different streams because, you know, they're all at different maturities and stages. So the, the hard carbon project is jointly with Queensland University of Technology. Yeah, right. We entered it about eight months ago. Um, we were actually discussing with it for a long time before that. But basically we're looking to use a biomass source, so an agricultural waste stream basically. And putting that through a pyrolysis process, which effectively effectively converts the you might have to tell us what a pyrolysis. <laughs> is. So, just can you go back to that agricultural component when what what you actually are extracting gas or something? Well, so these materials, like you what? know, I, I won't tell you what our feedstock is, but for example, if you had uh, rice husks or something like that, that typically will just degrade and will yeah. release. Yeah. Um, carbon in the form of methane yeah. uh, typically into the atmosphere. We've got a feedstock like that, which doesn't really have a, a large value. Uh, often we'll just get left there or it'll be used as compost or something yeah, like okay. that. Yeah, okay. Now I get it. We're able to take that material, basically heat it up yeah. in the absence of oxygen. So that that's effectively what pyrolysis is. Uh-huh. Okay. And convert the carbonaceous material, drive off all the impurities into a hard carbon, which is basically a disordered form of carbon, like mm-hmm. akin to graphite, but yeah. but different. Yeah. And as it turns out, these hard carbons are the current standard for sodium ion battery anodes. So mm. lithium ion batteries use graphite, sodium ion batteries use hard carbon. Now we were seeing some development in the sodium ion space. There's been a lot of activity recently globally from really large companies like CATL, uh, BYD, Volkswagen, mm. looking at Putting sodium ion batteries either in their electric vehicles or in their, you know, energy storage products, etc. Is this a not flammable? Is it flammable? Or? They're far safer, far than, safer um, than lithium, lithium right. ion batteries. So there's still so the issue with lithium ion batteries in terms of safety and flammability is that you can get this thermal runway runaway yeah. issue. Uh, sodium ion doesn't doesn't really have that same issue. So, yeah. so they are a lot safer in that respect. But importantly, they're not using lithium. Now, I love lithium. I'm part of the resources love space. lithium. Yeah, but, I but, get a T-shirt with that on. <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah. You, you know, lithium has been a boon <laughs> yes. for, the, for the mining yeah. industry yeah. over the past five years or so. But the reality is you need to mine lots, lots more of it very quickly to meet the battery industry growth. Um, and I think there will be material shortages over the next five to ten years, if not before. And sodium ion is a competitive battery technology that's been commercialised now. 
it won't perform the same as lithium in all applications, but in applications like energy storage or shorter range vehicles or two wheelers, it's definitely competitive and you're not using the same materials. In fact, you're using much lower crop, lower cost materials, which yeah. are abundant. Yeah, right. So if if the world, I love these statements where people say, you know, towns or cities say, we're going all electric vehicles. I mean, I don't know how many people they think that can afford all electric vehicles. But if if every electric vehicle in the world was lithium, we couldn't, we couldn't produce the batteries for them anyway. We just simply are short on lithium. We're short on power. So, you know, having different batteries, whether it's sodium or vanadium or whatever they are, is, you know, about balanced strategy moving forward, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's an absolute must. So, you know, yeah. I've got another role looking at, you know, battery raw materials in, yeah. in particular and, you know, it's the view of most people in the know that we'll be short on some of these elements that go into a lithium-ion battery at stages over the next 10 or so years. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, and the first, I guess, end users or customers that will get squeezed out are really going to be energy storage because the EV, the car makers will get first dibs and then it'll be a cascade from there. So energy storage, looking at the Hornsdale battery you know, here, mm. you know, that's a lithium-ion battery. Sodium-ion can do exactly the same job. And so I think, you know, in terms of targeting industries, that that's where sodium ion can really play a strong role yeah. uh, in the short term. And then as performance develops, you know, in EVs and and the like um, going forward. So the markets, mm, the market's growing, and there's going to be room for both lithium and sodium. Hundred percent. Yeah, it's actually the same on the hydrogen side. I think. There's yeah. definitely room for more than one technology yeah. other than electrolysis. So yeah, right. we're not saying we're going to completely replace electrolysis with photocatalysis, but there's, there's definitely room for for more technologies than, than just the one. I think that's interesting because, like, you know, even offshore wind, yeah, you know, there's a certain group that would say that we've got this huge landmass and we should be putting more wind turbines in, and that's fine, but that landmass is not necessarily near transition, so transmission lines. So that that's that comes at a cost. So offshore wind's a good solution for Australia, you know, in certain certain places. So EDF and companies like that are looking at it. But there's got to be other technologies as well. I just don't, you know, you just don't want to be have such a narrow view on what the solutions are because they're, an unbalanced strategy got us into a bad situation. So hopefully applying more balanced strategy is a good thing and looking at different technologies. Mm. Yeah, the, uh, the challenge is so big that yeah. it needs multiple technologies and as much sort of funding and, and R&D work than, than the world can provide to, to meet it. You know, it really so is. do we have a point of difference, Australia, to other countries, do you think, in the renewable space? Look, I think we do. Um, I think we've got great research in institutions. So, you know, that's key to what Spark does. You know, most, a lot of our projects are with universities or were generated out of yeah. universities. So that's key because science is, a, is so important into meeting these, uh, in terms of meeting these challenges. Obviously, um, skilled workforce, huge landmass, which, as I said before, for renewable energy is, is key. Good. These are all things that yeah. that give us a big advantage, and Sun, Sun Cable is trying yeah. to do that as well. 
yeah. to leverage that. Yeah, yeah, well, let's hope something happens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an investor. <laughs> okay. And renewable targets, the overall, how do you how do you see Australia achieving that? You kind of answered that a bit before, but just interested in your view there. Yeah, look, I, I think the, the the logical thing is is put as much renewable electricity in the grid as possible. Um, South Australia is almost sort of saturated in in some ways, but the other states are by far and away not. So that is the the key, and and part of the government's target is to get to I think it's eighty two percent or something mm. renewable energy in the grid. So that will go a long way. Uh, the next easiest and and one where I'm hoping there'll be more policy in Australia is is EVs. I mean, every other advanced jurisdiction in the world basically has better EV yeah. incentives, EV policies than we do. Yeah, right. And that's why it's hard to get an EV here because yeah. the car makers will send them to the markets where it's easy so to sell. So that's interesting because the government haven't mandated industry at all, have they? For EVs, there's I think there's a or, hand, or handful of targets. small, no, no EV targets per se, I, yeah. I don't believe, but certainly the support is not there like it is in, in the US yeah. and Europe. Um, yeah, sometimes yeah. I think like we're, you know, behind the eight ball in some areas like power transmission and things like that to be doing interconnectors in 2023 seems it's great to South Australia's advantage because we've got power that we can transmit and generate income from, but it just seems so late in the game. It's like the Cross River Rail. <laughs> it's just so late in the game. Yeah. <laughs> Frustrating. Uh, I was going to say on the EV front, someone said to me the other day that that we're in danger if we don't do something about it, that the, the cars that are built overseas just won't come to Australia. We'll just end up having nothing or not much mm. so that we, we have to kind of force ourselves into that market. Is that... Does that sound right? That, that that's complete. It's a current issue. Yeah, uh, you know the wait times for EVs here are, or at least were recently, twelve months, eighteen months, and we get very few models here. Yeah, because as I said, the car makers will target markets where it's easy to sell, and at, mm. at the moment, Australia's a long way away from where they produce them. Number one, and and number two, there's not really the incentive, so they're still quite expensive here relative to. And not everyone's going to afford one. That's just a fact. Yeah. There's not going to be a second-hand market for a long time. No, but I think if you create the market, that's the point. That it will come. Yeah, that it will come. And your Ferrari becomes a, mm. a, a Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not getting that. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Okay, well, thank you very much for both coming along. Is there anything you want to highlight of Spark, yeah. investor-type Sorry. Yeah, absolutely, Jody. Thank you. This has been very tough too, by the way. Tough, tough talk. talk. Oh, that's bullshit. <laughs> it's not. You want tough? Tough talk. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I think there's a, there's a couple of things. You know, we we do offer a bit of a unique uh, investment proposition. What we're doing in in graphene is is I think quite cutting edge, particularly in coatings and in composites, and and developing a, a graphene additive product that we're on, as I say on. Basically, commercialising right now, so that's that's really exciting for us yeah, going absolutely. forward, and that's 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 a real game changer for us, and particularly once we also consider the sustainability mm. element with what we're doing in that area. Just in terms of what you know, Nick's area and renewables with uh, green hydrogen and batteries. If you if you consider photocatalytic water splitting 
if you like what you hear, the, the technology, if you want to invest in that, good luck. Uh, you know, it's, it's really universities looking at it around the world or major companies like Fortescue. Mm. You're not going to get any real exposure or leverage with your investment yeah. in hydrogen, but you can with Spark. Mm. Very similar with sodium ion batteries. Yeah. I think we're the only ASX-listed company that has, you know, projects really targeted at the sodium ion battery space. Yeah, that's, that's a new one for me. That's mm. really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. once again, if you, if you like that story mm. and you actually would like to invest in it, Spark's probably the your only go. option. Yeah, wow. Thank okay. you. Thank you, Stephen. And I should say that of the four people sitting around this table, I think three would be investors and I'm not an investor. <laughs> so there's no, conf no conflict from my side of things. Any time is a good time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good time now. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very yeah, thank much you. for coming in. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, really interesting. Thanks. Thank you very much. No, thanks to the both of you. Yep. Thank, thank you. you.